Hello and welcome to season 2 of the Books of the Boardroom podcast. This is a podcast where we talk to inspiring professionals such as CEOs and CFOs about the journey they went on to become the leaders they are today. We will discuss the challenges they faced, the pivotal experiences that shaped their growth and what it takes to become a true leader. My name is Sumit Desanayaka. I'm the managing director of Briska and I'll be your co-host. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Briska. Briska helps medium to large Australian companies comfortably meet their financial obligations in a cost-effective manner by providing them with a fully trained outsourced finance staff. Thanks for listening. Today I have a very special guest to whom I can talk more than business. He has a business as well as a sporting background. Brad Moran, a former AFL player, turned into a highly successful business leader in Brisbane. Brad is the CEO and co-founder of Citrus. Brad, welcome to the Books of the Boardroom podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have you, Mike. Now, I mean, this we can discuss a lot about leadership in sports field as well as in business. Yep. So, first I would like to talk about the leadership journey. Yep. So, tell us more about how you got involved with the AFL in the first place. Yeah, yeah, so AFL was um I certainly fell into the sport being from England originally. So I, I grew up playing playing football, round ball football. <laughs> and then uh, unlike Australia's football, which is every sport, it's called football, yeah, yeah, you know, which is hard to get used to when you first got here. I had the same issue here I when know, I first I came in. That was a cool cricket football as well. That would just make it all consistent. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I grew up playing football and rugby and, and moved to the Gold Coast when I was 15. My whole family migrated to, to Australia. And I started playing competitive rugby and uh, at, at school. And um, to cut a very long story short, you know, a lot of you know school politics around team selection and you know face fitting, and um, found myself not enjoying the sport very much. And so, after playing a season, I decided I wasn't going to go back. I uh, started rowing of all sports. Uh, a friend of mine was a rower. Said, you know, you're built like a rower. You should get in the boat with us. And so. <laughs> Just like my AFL career, I literally just jumped in the boat, didn't have a training session, and then the next day I was in a race. And so it was uh, pretty, uh, it was, you know, a baptism of fire. So I was like, learn quickly or you're going to really annoy some people with pushing an oar in their back. <laughs> and so, um, but then I just became obsessed with rowing. You know, I, I became, like I, I was reasonably good at it to start with and then it just became... Um, you know an obsession for me so i trained twice a day every day i took a boat home from school early morning starts for sure yeah yeah it was a 5 a.m start every day for 700 days oh, straight wow. even though i'm totally not a morning person i hate mornings <laughs> and then every night after school i would train as well and and i became you know a very a very competitive rower again school politics got in the way so I started to play AFL through a friend of mine at school. Again, just fell into that sport. Never watched a game. He said, look, we're, we're down a player. You know, you're tall and athletic. Come and play in the ruck with us and come play football. I'm like, yeah, sure, what could go wrong? And I didn't enjoy it that much, to be honest, when I started playing it, but I was very, very good at it. Like, people saw a lot of potential in my, my ability. And I have to blame, you know, Roger Merritt, unfortunately, who's an ex-Brisbane Bear. So he, he gave my mum some advice early days in my very, very first training session. I said, you know, they're looking for players like your son these days. I think he could make it professionally. And so from that, that day on, <laughs> my mum forced me to go to football training. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> twice a week, every week, even though I didn't really enjoy it that much. But once I started getting into it, you know, I had the choice, really. I went to my school and said, look, I want to I continue to row. Rowing is a morning sport. 
I can do AFL in the afternoons and row in the mornings and, and, and they basically said, no, you've got to pick. You know, we don't support AFL at the school. So so I said, well, if you're going to be that petty, I'm going to go play AFL. And uh, yeah, I won't bore you with any more school politics, but I continued after that, long after that. And I started playing at AFL for Service Paradise when I'm now the illustrious under-8s coach. It's a pretty prestigious <laughs> title I've got now. In fact, it's much harder coaching yeah. eight-year-olds than it is playing. And then, you know, it was a very short and sharp entry into the AFL I think I played 12 games of AFL in total before I got drafted you know I had some ups and downs in that 12 games managed to break my arm once so I missed a few games there but I had a couple of coaches that really nurtured me early and a very smart coach at Southport called Norm Dare so he was a you know kind of former assistant coach at Geelong in North Melbourne and he bitterly let me down on grand final day when he dropped me for the final and I was really 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 annoyed that I'd been dropped and I went back and played in the reserves and I got you know best on ground and I was you know excelled in that game and at that age senior level football is played by sort of ex-professionals and people in their early to mid 20s yeah. so it was a very physical game very, very you know it's a man's game and I was still 17 so I was still young and he comes up to me after the game and he, and he patted me on the back and he said, aren't you glad I did that? And, <laughs> and I said, yes, I'm very glad you did that because it enabled me to sort of shine at my level, you know, with a bunch of 18-year-olds. And, and that game was pretty much what got me drafted. So, you know, I spent the next three years in, in Melbourne, moved out of home at 18, went to Melbourne, played for, for North Melbourne down there and had an indifferent time, you know, got to learn a lot about leadership and politics yeah. and Unfortunately, the politics never stopped chasing me around, and I looked back at 35 and thought maybe it was me. You know, <laughs> seemed to have followed me everywhere. So you know, maybe I had a part to play in it. But I think I never really fit the mold in a lot of places that I went to, and you know, I didn't want to be status quo, and I didn't want to be you know, one of the boys, and I didn't like to drink that much, and I didn't like to socialise that much. And so, unfortunately, when you're playing in in, in the AFL, and and it, they do have that sort of culture, particularly when I was playing, it was sort of like. You know, I didn't really fit in that well socially and so your social status can often determine your opportunities and how popular you are in the team and so on and so forth so no different to business and life in general <laughs> getting ahead is is about who you know not necessarily not what you know but yeah one I guess one funny story from well, not funny story but one irony about playing at North Melbourne was that their their reserve team was Tasmania so I had to fly down to Tasmania every week to play in the VFL and I hated going down there just because I thought a flight before every game is bad preparation and everyone else gets to stay in Melbourne and play close to home and and I finally got my first game you know I got, got called up and I'm like yes <laughs> big, here yeah, it is the big, big one I'm like yeah. the moment I've been waiting yeah. for and I look at the schedule and the location we're playing in Tasmania I'm like right. you motherfuckers <laughs> Like, uh, at least I knew the ground well, yes, you know, yes, and I played yeah, there plenty of, of times. Familiarity, yes. So yeah, so then I wasn't getting a you know a great amount of opportunity at, at North Melbourne. I think they had the tallest list in the league, like everyone, yeah. like that about twelve guys over six six. So I was kind of fifth in the pecking order. Went to Adelaide to get more opportunity. Had a different set of problems there. You know, I was getting opportunity, but I had continual injuries. So I broke my thumb. Oh, sorry, I broke my finger in the first six weeks I was there. And then I then I did my knee. And then, you know, sort of... It wasn't really injuries that ended my career. It was more... I spent 36 weeks sitting on the sidelines of watching my team play. And you, you, you get very... You get very bitter 
watching and at the time that team had an ultra competitive culture and in my opinion it was too competitive to the point where teammates were sort of climbing over each other to get to first position so there's a very very delicate balance between trying to create an elite team and having the team kill each other to be in the team and so you know there was not much love lost between teammates unfortunately and so I found myself thinking like thoughts that I don't even like to verbalize now things like oh I'm hoping they play really shit when I'm not in the team so it makes me look better you know you're hoping someone gets injured so then you can go back into the team and it honestly it's 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 not nice <laughs> really, really candid, mate. You know, that, like, that's the truth it is the yeah, truth yeah. and then like any AFL player sitting on the sideline who says different is bullshitting you you know you watch these guys run out on grand final day who weren't in the team hugging their best mates and celebrating they're thinking fuck i wanted to be in that team like i'm really annoyed i wasn't in that yeah, team yeah. It's like i'll celebrate it with you but really it's killing me inside that i wasn't on the ground so yeah look it, it the afl and sport in general taught me a lot about resilience mostly things not going your way um but it also taught me that you can eventually your time will come like if you stick at something long enough and hard yeah. enough and you want it badly enough um maybe you get lucky and you and, you know and obviously fortune favors the brave but i do believe a lot of my career has been a lot of luck i was only in a meeting with someone before and chatting to him about what it's like to be a founder and saying a lot of people certainly glamorize it and they think that well they don't the point i was getting to was more around the sort of certain level of arrogance that people can have once they've become successful and when you distill it all back it's just luck how far do you want to go back before we start digging up the luck the family you were born into the country you were born in the height weight athleticism that you had the brains that you've got the drive that you've got like people think oh, i worked harder than this person so i can look down on them but in my opinion everything that i've ever had every every gift i've ever been given was a gift yep. it was all luck the luck of the draw my upbringing the way i was brought up the things that i did or didn't do made me the character that i am today which makes you an obsessive compulsive type and an obsessive type a driven person and they're the ones that are often deemed as successful at a lot of cost though <laughs> but yeah i think i think that from an afl perspective uh, i learned a significant amount about politics and about how to navigate through or not navigate through very well and uh, i learned a lot about leadership too but not by watching good leaders more so by watching what they did wrong and how i felt and how that made me feel and what i would perhaps do differently and i'm not saying i got a perfect day one because i certainly did in my first business in the first couple of years was a train wreck in terms of leadership i was all over the shop but as i got older and i haven't got any gray hair yet but you know Mm -hmm. as i got more mature you start to realize what things really matter in business and reflecting back on it now leadership is certainly you know a whole range of things and i know that's sort of the point of the podcast around leadership but it's it's never one thing it's a whole array of emotions and disciplines and it's often so much more about what you don't say and do as it is about what you do and say so yeah so football kind of finished I decided after so you, know, you finished at 24 24 if, yeah right so you only played for a few years seven years yeah. seven years i was a spring chicken when i when i retired so what's the usual age usually the players retire well a few of the players i played with are still playing now right. that's not very common though i would say if you're a good player you'll play 10 years 10 to 12 years average players play maybe four to five 
because it's so well, it's so competitive and it's very brutal on the body as well so um, yeah for sure you know i'm 36 now i've got a hip replacement so i've got a full metal hip basically due to the impact injuries and the jumping and the kicking and the basically constant overuse so yeah it, it definitely leaves you with a lot of scars playing at that level since you were talking about players retiring and getting injured fairly quickly in their lives, right? I heard that it's a bit harder for them to continue their life. And if they finish up in, say, 30, there's a long way ahead of them time. So are there any transition arrangements for them to go into? Or do you get any support that way? Or Well, it's called the door. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're lucky, you get to walk out of it and not get thrown out of it. But... Look, I mean, we could spend six hours talking about AFL and the exits of AFL, but in short, there's probably not enough systematized kind of processes to get footballers to that next level. I think because, two, two reasons. One is because most players never think their career is going to end until it ends, and it ends very abruptly. And then the second reason is because the way that the AFL contracts and the AFL system is structured is probably not helping that either and so someone asked me about this a long time ago about you know what would you do to fix it and I think when you think about the whole pool of money for players the thing that hurts the players the most or at least I think from what I've seen and and heard is is the abruptness of the end of their careers and so what I mean by that is is that one minute they're playing and then the next week it's like it never happened the door shuts yep. you're not allowed back in it's a bit like the, I wouldn't say I've ever been in the army but it's kind of like you've got that tight camaraderie and then all of a sudden it's over it's you know over. Yeah. You, you don't mix socially anymore because everyone's on a different schedule and you've got to go get a real job now and so for me I think that one of the things the AFL could definitely do is, is have what I would call like a sunset clause in people's contracts so you would basically give someone notice like you're going to be you're going to be done in two years yeah true and so it gives them at least an opportunity to one get their head around an end date because it's going to come (laughs) and it lets them sort of have a salary while they transition into something else and i think that would probably be the most practical way to go but other sports have the luxury of being paid significantly more and so normally they'll have agents and managers that look after them and invest their money but a lot of a lot of people criticize the AFL and the AFL players for being paid too well and you get paid more than the old days but considering what these guys do I mean they're in the they're in the top 1% 0.1% of their field if you took the top 0.1% of surgeons in the world i reckon they're on pretty good wickets you take the top 1% of anybody and they're on really really good salary sure. so yeah. so i think for for these guys and the amount of money they bring in for the entertainment industry i think that they're very underpaid which is part of the problem because most of them finish their careers, they haven't got any savings. Maybe they've paid off their house if they're lucky, but they've foregone probably the better part of their business careers, university careers to sacrifice to play football. And I'm not getting my violin out by any stretch. Exactly. On the other hand, AFL players do have great access to incredible people if they so choose to go seek them out. And so that's how I started my first business was I knew my career was kind of done I'd lost interest in the football and I knew in the January of that year that I was going to be finished. And so I decided to start a business and what I did was I utilized my networks within the football fraternity. So I utilized all the sponsors of the football club and all the high net worth individuals. And I was going to ask that question, how did you get started? That tells me that you had access to right people 
if you go find them then you can get started right yeah yeah it's not necessarily a one plus one equals two these businessmen aren't that stupid yeah for sure they're not going to invest in any old rubbish but they will at least give you an opportunity and so i went to many adelaide crows support fans sponsors and took me probably 60 65 pitches to secure a million dollars but every meeting i did got me one step closer to figuring out what i was i basically started with i went to the club and said who's good to go chat to about business and happened to be a a guy that was head of the state bank at the time so he gave me an hour of his time again luck right you know yeah for sure so i was lucky enough to get an hour of his time and i said i've got this idea i want to I want to build this app. I've got this yeah, what was phone. the first business? Well, the first business was basically Uber Eats, but like 13 years ago. So it was basically a mobile app that let you pre-order and pay for food, coffee. And that was really designed to kind of skip How the did you get that idea? I was sitting in the in the movies in, in Melbourne um, and being an athlete, obviously you can't eat junk food. So I ate Nando's a fair bit. And I jailbroke the iPhone 2. So I was one of the first people in Australia to have the iPhone 2. And I thought, this device is incredible. Like, imagine what we could do with this. And, and I was thinking, imagine if you could just pre-order and pay for my Nando's, not have to wait 20 minutes for them to cook the chicken and then, <laughs> yeah, then go get it and, and not miss any of the movie. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was really where the kind of idea spawned from. And when you have a device like that, you start to think about all the different applications that you can do with it. And I, I literally took two business ideas, just one-page documents to one of these investors. And I said, one of them was a taxi ordering application bit like uber but just for taxis yeah yeah yeah. yeah. and one was for the fast food and uh, everyone loved the taxi one more and and i got some great advice from a stockbroker baker young stockbrokers in adelaide a guy called alan young who's a a very good stockbroker but he basically said look i think they're both good but think about where it's going to fail there's four taxi companies in australia if they all say no your business is knackered there's 35,000 restaurants yep. and cafes and there's one starting every five minutes. I'd like your chances there. And I then started to pursue that. My one-page business plan, which wasn't a business plan, it was just a drawing of a phone. It was then a, a series of questions. So I asked the manager of the state bank, what do I do with this idea? So well, you're going to need an accountant and you're going to need to raise money and you're going to need a business plan, you're going to need a lawyer. And, you're gonna... and so I literally just did the skip around town putting together asking a lot of questions i was lucky lucky again enough to meet a stockbroker who raises capital for a living and i said well can i just have a look at what a capital raising document looks like (laughs) and uh, he gave me this medical imaging device m pitch deck now as they're called not really called information memorandums but but the old pitch deck and uh, this thing was probably like 80 pages long of a company that was probably like at series c round and i was like seed and i literally got it and copied it almost verbatim just replacing the word medical device with iphone application yeah and some pretty drawings about whatever and luckily at the time Domino's had just released like their online ordering and starbucks had just released an app and so i had a little bit of credibility and i remember the first sort of slide of my first pitch deck was just starbucks and Domino's, and then the next slide was just the apple stock going from like nothing to a lot and i said smartphones are going to take off yeah this thing's going to be really good and Eventually, just persistence sort of got me the cash, and I, re- I heard the word no a lot of times. Because so you had no partners, so you were doing it by yourself. Yeah, all by myself. It's very, very difficult to get in front of investors that you've never really, you've never really had a real job. You're a footballer, in their eyes, you're you're a dumb footballer. You had no experience in business, and you're gonna you're pitching this kind of leading edge piece of technology, 
and and so you can understand why these people were a little bit reluctant to, to piss fifty thousand up a war, right? Here you go, yeah, just burn my cash. <laughs> if I just set it fire to it right now, you know. So, uh, but as I started doing more and more meetings, I started to understand what the problem was, and the problem was all about credibility. So the idea was sound, the business model was sound-ish after six pivots, uh, mm-hmm. but I had no credibility, no prior experience, nothing. And so I then sought out a different type of investor. So I sought out someone who could help give me credibility. And again, total luck, ended up lucking out on this one guy who came back to Adelaide, wanted to be part of the football club wasn't part of the football club yet but wanted to be a part of it and saw me as an avenue to get involved and for him it was a very cheap way of getting involved yeah, and mixing with the right people yeah. and and i wanted something from him which was his credibility and his money and he wanted something from me or at least the way yeah, i saw it's it win-win. and and that's how the business kind of started because i went back to everyone after that and said this guy's in and they're like well if that guy's in i'm in for double yeah. And then it became significantly easier to raise capital after that. But that's just when the fun started. Then you start to actually operate a business and realize how difficult it is and how many mistakes you're going to make and you think you get it right. And then six business plans later, you start to question your life. You're like, am I doing the right thing? Am I ever going to get it right? I can't make any money. All I'm doing is just burning through investor capital. And because I didn't do a lot of research on startups at that point, it was all just sort of learn through experience. I had no idea whether I was really doing a good job or not. And I'm super self-critical, so I'm really getting down on myself. And we ran that business for six years until I was kind of brutally shot in the back of the head and told to, to leave. But during that time, it was a lot of pivots. You know, the market, we were really early. Uber Eats is really only just taking off now, right? So yeah. we were very, very early. We were in a, what we call a B2C market or a B2B and a B2C. So we had to sell to the pizza shops yeah. and then we had to sell to the the customers customers. and trying to do that with limited capital extremely difficult and the smartphone adoption wasn't quite high enough at that point and so we were very very early and so we had to pivot into how can we make money without how can we stay alive long enough to the market kind of catches up with us and so we then started white labeling the solution and and, and selling it to brands to use as their own kind of white label ordering platform which kind of went down pretty well managed to crack a couple of bigger contracts but where the business started to turn was, again, by complete luck, a supermarket chain came to us through my dad. His, they had an office next to each other. The old geriatric conversation of, oh, your son's into apps. Yeah, my son's into apps too. Neither of us were in apps. But they connected the sons together. And all of a sudden, he's like, well, we need, a, we need an online solution for our grocery store. Coles and Woolies are doing it now. We, we need something. And said, oh, we can build that. And basically, that, that's where we started building out a grocery application. We had no idea what we we're getting into. We, it was just the old fake it till you make it, you know, kind of how hard can it be, right? And, yeah. and then we realized that building an e-commerce platform for grocery was not about difficulty in building a website or a mobile application it was about dealing with all the data that was sitting inside a 50 year old point of sale system right and, and yeah connecting yeah people think of online shopping now is very very mature now but back in the day when you used to get a receipt it would have a limited amount of characters on it so if you ever read it with coca-cola would be c <laughs> stroke cla because you were only allowed 26 characters for your products sure. and so we would take this file and then we'd be like, I can't read that. Like, 
how do we disseminate what that is to an actual real product? And then when people forget search engines, yeah. when people go online and they search for Coke, they couldn't even find Coke because the it's word Coke Sony, didn't exist in the catalog. So, uh, so that was the biggest problem we overcame. And then the most frustrating part about that business model was that if, if we thought we'd found a solution to taking crappy data and basically making it readable, we then found out that every single independent retailer in the country decided to have different barcodes for all their fruit and vegetables. And so we thought we'd nailed it with one and then everyone has their own, you know. And so we were like, oh my gosh, back to square one again. So that really rate limited our scale. Eventually we got it right and then we we went to the US. So we, we thought, he who dares wins. And um, all of our board members looked at us like we were crazy. You were in Adelaide, right? We're not even in Sydney yet. We're going to the US. But we knew the U.S. was the market because it had a lot of the mid, mid-tier grocery yeah, stores. Right? Yep. Huge, yep. very regionalized. In Australia, it was just Coles and Woolworths. That's right. Yep. At that time, it was like 95% market share. So the market was far too small. And so we did what most entrepreneurs do, get on the phone, Google, okay, yeah, grocers in the U.S. And we found this union effectively that was like called the NGA, the National Grocers Association, called them up. I said, oh, okay, well, this is the product we've got. What do you recommend? Oh, we've got a trade show coming up. You guys should speak to these guys. And then we spoke to some other people and they're like, oh, you should come over to the trade show and introduce yourselves. And they must've been thinking, who are these crazy Aussie guys? <laughs> and so then we, t- we turn up and we've got like four weeks to organize this trade show. And not knowing anything about the US, anything about the Midwest, anything about like the way that they operate, dress, like the yeah, culture. Yeah. And so we turned up and just like I never fit into my football career with what I used to wear and drive and all that sort of flamboyant stuff. It was like putting an Apple store in a flea market. Like we had white porcelain flooring, giant screens everywhere. (laughs) And people were just walking past like, what the fuck is this? Like, who are these guys? I can't imagine. But like these like crazy Aussie guys. But occasionally the occasional like grocer would come up and be like, this is really cool. Like I really like what you guys are doing. And and, we had to bluff our way through and be like, yeah, yeah, we've we've got an office here. Like we're in LA somewhere and (laughs) some PO box and like some virtual address that we'd bought. And then we had some like US numbers that we redirected to our Australian numbers. And oh, the amount of times I've done 2 a.m. meetings in my car, in my garage, because I had to try and pretend that I lived in the US. Yeah. Like it's just the crazy stuff we used to do um, just to try and win an account or the risks you have to take, the, the sort of the crazy stuff you have to do just to get a client. And then we moved over there eventually and, and I spent 12 months living in the US really trying to build the business. And um, at the same time, I had some management staff that really didn't like me. It was only a matter of time. Like I knew I was on borrowed time at that point. So. Yeah, it was pretty tough going into work every day knowing that you were eventually going to get get shot. And I went into work one day and my laptop had been imaged. My phone had been imaged when I went to lunch, basically putting tracking devices on this stuff and imaging it to see what I'd been saying and doing. And then emails got breached and hacked into and people were monitoring what I was sending and receiving. And so whilst technically I think it was legal, I felt very violated, you know, and so I knew at that point it was untenable and I ended up going back to Australia. I'd built a, a fairly big business in Australia. I'd say big is like 30 people here, but there were like people that really respected me or that I'd gone through the trenches with for the last six, seven years. And so part of the condition of going back to Australia was I wasn't allowed to come into the office. 
they banned me from the office basically said you're, you're too disruptive because the american cto who was in the office didn't really know what he was doing and i had far too much clout over the team and the product team and so yeah it was really traumatic to sort of build something get kind of forced out of it forced back to australia and then told you can work for us but you can't come into the office and see anybody or disrupt anyone or do anything and uh, but i played ball like, i was kind of really nervous at that point i didn't know my rights i didn't know what to do i just kind of had this unwavering loyalty to the business and as a founder it's your baby and i really wanted to see it succeed and eventually me and my co-founder now i got invited to a board meeting and basically got shot one after the other wow it, it, the story expands very very deeply and vastly through through there but um I would say that, you know, that business in itself taught me a significant amount about, again, resilience, leadership, how to build a product, how to scale a product, how to go overseas, how much relationships count, how to deal with investors, how to deal with uh, board members, how to understand that everyone's in it for different reasons. And then I moved back in with my parents after getting fired, obviously I had two young kids, I had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time, so it was pretty scary. Yeah. Moved back in with mum and dad, so towel between the legs quite firmly there. And of course, after you don't succeed in Australia, you're sort of seen as a bit of a failure around yeah, there. So, for sure. Yeah, So I was definitely wearing that badge pretty hard for a while. Gave up the startup scene, didn't want to get back into it, had significant burnout by the time I'd finished my first business, just... I didn't want to look at a boardroom again, didn't want to talk to anyone about business, just was so, had so much anxiety and depression and PTSD and like, if you, you could not have paid me enough to start another business. Like it was just that, it was that bad by the time we'd finished. Pe- people have asked, oh, when did you think that you'd maybe reached your limits? And I was like, well, when I went to the emergency department because my heart was beating out of its chest. I was having atrial fibrillation attack basically. It's just from too much stress. But when you're an excellently athlete, you think, I'm going to die. Like, you know, I remember driving to the ED and being in a huge panic and having a bad episode. And the, the doctor's like, well, it's just a, yeah, you're fine now. Your heart's back into a rhythm. You, you should be okay, but take it easy. Your stress is obviously way too high. So the next morning I flew to the US and I did a few business meetings. So, <laughs> so I punished my body. And, and unfortunately, being an elite athlete is you have this mentality of push through the pain barrier. And it's very unhealthy to have. And... I'm still now, what am I in now? I'm in my 12th, nearly 13th year and I'm I'm really suffering mentally and physically from the last 12 years, from everything it takes to build a business and, and, and reach kind of what, what everyone deems as success, right? Successful business, successful exit and they put you on a pedestal and then they don't really hear the, the shit stories that go into building that you know, in that legacy so um so they call the passport years like in my case i'm always saying that there's part passport years and no one care about it mm. they only care about now yeah, yeah, yeah but for last five years in my case the same mind and i had a rough time yeah, yeah i can imagine <laughs> yeah well when i hit the news it went pretty viral because of my football background yeah and I never let my kids read it because obviously the, the Finn Review did a did a piece and, uh, and then Fox Sports picked it up, Fox right. News picked it up and it went, it was all over the country. Like everyone was reading about it because it's not every day that a footballer sells his business, yeah, no, right? For, no, not, yeah, not, not for yeah, that sort of yeah. amount of money. And it was, everyone kind of thinks, oh, you know, 
dumb footballer must have got lucky or out you know must have invested in bitcoin or some shit yeah. you know you know kind of flicked his yeah. way into a business and then and then it kind of said you know ex afl star turns whatever businessman and then i just got <laughs> i got like crucified on facebook and instagram but this guy's not a fucking star he's, he's average at best i'm like hey come on it was a good 10 games it's uh we're in it for a short time not a long time <laughs> but uh, yeah i just found it it was interesting but yeah starting citrus was was definitely not on the cards moved back to the gold coast to live with my parents and then it was basically draw up the resume and give it to some recruiters in brisbane and, and start pounding the pavement so i knew how to hustle and I, and I knew okay it's just a matter of time before i get something and a lot of job interviews and a lot of applications that just went nowhere and no one really wanted to tell me the honest truth but it i kind of devised it down to two things the jobs that i was suitable for i probably didn't have the personality type for a corporate i would go in and yeah. more than likely upset the apple cart or maybe show some people yeah, off i was going to ask that question especially when you are a sporting star so you could have <laughs> was ego in right so transitioning from that ego stick the nature to a corporate I'm sure it is a bit hard because in politics, in the organization, there's a politics that happens mm. and there's a, there's a limit that they tolerate the, <laughs> yeah, the well, ego. HR's got a bunch of boxes to tick <laughs> and, I, and I didn't tick anyone. So. <laughs> I can imagine. So, um, yeah, look, I, I was skilled at my craft, but unfortunately when you're the CEO, you're the jack of all trades. Yeah. So you don't have any specific skills other than maybe leadership and kind of innovation. I, I thought I had a lot of skills, but those skills just aren't recognized in the corporate world and and I was seen as either kind of too much of a startup guy or if I could be polished I was going to be seen as someone that might disrupt the apple cart a bit too much as well so at some point too I was writing business plans for businesses they would they would put out a, a job description like we want you to do this <laughs> and I would legitimately write like a 20 page document instead of a, a cover letter I would write here's what I'm going to do and then I found out like a few years later a mate of mine ended up taking that job yeah and he said yeah we used your business plan it's quite good i'm like oh good yeah good to see that you've got some use out of it and yeah but yeah it was all those doors closing really that that made me think about maybe where i was heading and maybe that maybe that wasn't the destiny for me and i thought about my business partner who who was extremely loyal to me all the way to the end of my previous business he could have turned his back on me and saved his own job and done what many people did do and could have done but he didn't he decided to go down with the titanic like he was he's loyal to me that sort of friendship and loyalty you can't put a price on it for and, sure uh, and so i looked at his opportunities and where he was going to and he was struggling just like me and i thought i've got more than just my own responsibility to take care of here i feel like i've got to take care of him as well and we had this idea we'd been in the industry for long enough we thought there's an opportunity for what citrus is now which is selling ad space in, in a clever way basically selling google adwords but for retail I, i said to him look i'm pretty exhausted like that's an understatement i said i'll put a deck together we'll put some financials together we'll do the feasibility on the business model and we'll go see three or four investors and if they say no then that's it i'm not going to do anymore and the first guy that we saw said yes this is great <laughs> is 200 grand and I'll help you raise the rest and yeah. so it happened overnight but it still took I guess three months the good thing about where we were second time around was that we had so much more knowledge about what to do and how to do it and what the pitfalls were going to be sure. the main thing is that we were super pragmatic so we were like 
Optimism, dead, gone. <laughs> Unicorns, they don't fucking exist. Yeah. It's the reason they call them unicorns, right? You yeah. can't find one. And we, we really struggled second time around, though, to raise capital because first time around, you, you struggled because you had no credibility as a footballer. Second time around, it was a tough sell because a lot of the investors said you failed in your first business. You're just going to fail again. And it, it was difficult to sort of try and educate them on new product again, new field, brand new, brand new ground and kind of spin it in a way that says we're actually more experienced now like we know what we're doing we know what mistakes we made we, we probably won't make them again even though we did made lots of mistakes again but i try and coach a few startups now and educate them on um what's go- like how to raise money and what to do and and the reality is a lot of it is persistence and it's about you and a lot of startups want to just raise money from one vc because it's convenient but it, it takes 50, 60 meetings to get to get capital. Yeah, you know, sure. either just through sheer like a sales funnel. You look at a hundred leads, you might convert two. No different to, sure. to, to converting capital. So yeah. these guys were were pretty brutal on us early, but we softened them up with a bit of repetition and begging. But they put in some controls that made so that if we if we left at any stage or we mucked up in any way, shape, or form, they would take full control of the business. So. We were like the genie from Aladdin. We were handcuffed to the business. So death do us part was pretty much the way it was. And even if we died, our spouses didn't get anything. You know, went back to the to the shareholders. So, yeah. so I couldn't even die during during the process. Um, <laughs> true. So, so yeah, just out of really no other options, we started we started Citrus, and we got a co-founder in to to help us. Someone who was very technical. Someone who worked for me in my previous business. Who was a very 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 smart guy. He helped engineer the solution. I'm a very product-driven person, visionary. This is how I want it to work. This is why. This is what it needs to look like. But I wasn't an You're the one who was not compromising the dream, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. At that point, I was the one tussling with engineers yeah. over what it should and shouldn't do. But I certainly wasn't the Steve Wozniak. I was certainly wasn't putting any code together and, 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 uh, and engineering anything. But again, talk about luck. It's luck that he wanted to join. It was luck that when we got to Brisbane, a friend of a friend knew a guy that just happened to work for the Amazon ads division. And he was a Canadian here on holiday and pretty free spirit, didn't want to stick around, just want to do some consulting. And we took him out for a beer and we told him what we wanted to do and what we wanted to build. And I told him the story about my previous business and what a fucking shit show it was and how much I'd learned and he asked tough questions he goes well, what do you pay yourself what you know so just like pointed questions but he wanted to see what kind of it's reaction specific, we would do yeah. right? and then and i knew what he was trying to get at and i'm like look i'm as raw and honest as anyone has ever been so i was happy to tell him warts and all and at the end of it he's like he goes oh okay i mean he goes this is either going to take off or it's going to be a like a monumental fuck up but either <laughs> either way i want to be part of it because so it's, extreme, it's, no it's like between. it's gonna be fun <laughs> this is what i want to do and so we worked on trying to get him a visa and he still works for us today so he was employee number one and talk about loyalty we're 5.8 years into the business and he's still the svp of engineering so yeah no you don't really well in the business now it's very it's a global business isn't it so you got a global presence 32 countries now 32 countries mm. wow, that's massive yeah a lot of traveling early 
a lot of we placed a lot of bets early as well so we went international pretty much day one because we knew just how long it takes to break those markets yeah. that's that compounded knowledge isn't it like not a lot of people put a weight on that compounded knowledge even you had a failure so you compound a lot from the failure yeah right so now you're in 32 countries in five and a half years yeah i mean we pretty much got there pre-acquisition so to say 3.9 years so right. I, I love sports cars so i use the you know the sports car analogy you know not to 203.9 <laughs> pretty much bef- even before we built the product we had mobilized a sales team in two countries the uk and the us it made lots of errors and we changed a bunch of things along the way but people started to hear our name citrus citrus who's citrus and they keep coming to us and so eventually when these these retailers wanted a product like ours we were a little bit more familiar to them yeah but the whole journey on how citrus grew is one of just so many half chances that could have gone either way so people look at citrus and think it was very linear kind of our cruise to sort of not cruise to success but anyone that knows startups knows how difficult they are but it, it because it was such a short period of time they think oh it's just kind of went like that but it was it was really jagged and and to the point where like february 2020 we were out of cash prospects weren't looking that good yeah we were sort of in the balance with a few big retailers that we hadn't won any at this point Woolworths hadn't really signed a big deal with us at this point they were still kind of testing and trialing covid hit so everyone's wallets kind of zipped up really quickly but we went to a company called molus at the time an investment bank in in sydney now called ma financial and we it was our pragmatism and our pragmatism mixed with optimism and said look we, we believe in our plan like we believe that we can execute it with the right amount of capital even with the headwinds that we're seeing with with covid and they placed a lot of faith in us they, they gave us six and a half million dollars at a pretty good valuation even though at that time and this is what i you know <laughs> crazy when you go back on it like at the time we owed a bank money so we didn't even have no money we owed people money <laughs> That's really good so, so we owed people <laughs> like one and a half million and we were probably four weeks away from them taking the business into receivership and owning the whole of the assets and so i was relatively stressed in february of 2020 and eventually we closed the deal out with ma financial who just took a punt on us took a risk and then from there we we a lot of the groundwork that we'd done previous to that was starting to pay off sort of midway through 2020 and everyone thinks oh you rode the covid tailwinds we didn't because during covid retailers were too busy trying to keep their websites yeah, up of course they, they weren't thinking about oh what's the latest new innovation i can buy that didn't come until nine months after until they could start taking a breath again i remember dealing with woolworths and trying to get them to sign a deal and they're like we can't talk about the deal today because everyone from woolworths x is in the fulfillment centers packing, packing orders yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm like, oh geez okay what are we gonna do about this one then so like short of like flying down and helping them yeah. literally got to that point but what that money enabled us to do and i talk about capital in lots of different ways but that capital had such impact in our business even though we never spent a dollar of it so what that capital allowed us to do was to take some risks that we never thought we would take before so we acquired a u.s business we took on like 30 40 staff in the u.s overnight because a business had folded so we decided to sort of aqua buy aqua hire their kind of staff and we got their customers again with them yeah 
in the US market, it's all about credibility, right? It Just is, like it yeah, is here. Yeah. And so even if you've got the best technology in the world, we were fighting against people that were much, much bigger than us in the US. Like Critio was massive, $400 million a year business, just a mammoth of a, of, of a, of a business to try and compete with. And we were coming off like nothing, a shitty Australian startup trying to compete. Yeah. We had good tech, but we had no people. And so we had to go buy the people. And that's what we did is we went out and we took some risks and we took on, our payroll went from like March, 2020 being I don't know, maybe like a couple hundred grand a month to like 800,000 a month. But because it was linked to retailers that were generating that cash that no one else could really afford because they'd run themselves into debt, yeah. we started building revenue quickly as well. And so a few of those tiny decisions that we made, it's like there were big decisions, but like those, those instrumental decisions led to our US growth, like massive growth in that year. So we ended up buying kind of three clients a network of retailers in the US to sort of use our ad systems. Then all of a sudden, when we go chat to Target or Best Buy or any of the bigger brands, we've got people, credibility, customers, and all of a sudden we get a seat at the table. And we went from zero retailers in the US to three to 30 in 12 months. Wow. For me, that's probably the best accolade. It's one thing to build a tech startup. Yeah. It's another thing to crack the US market. Like the US market is incredibly difficult to crack. So, um, but yeah, you know, 12 months on, we sold the business for $200 million, right? So people just look at the end result. So you sold it in the sense like you sold the whole thing or you sold a portion of the business? No, it was a 100% trade sale, yeah. So we, we sold to <laughs> sold to uh, a French multinational ad agency called Publicis Group. But people just see the end result, right? You know, if you if you backtrack just 12 months just 12 months <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Like we were knackered <laughs> yeah, like we were like <laughs> negative two, we were negative yeah. <laughs> yeah we were negative 200 at that point yeah you never know what's around the corner yeah, and you never know that if you take your foot off the gas or give up you never know what could have been the next week and this is about that taking the calculated risk right yeah. so you always talk about like how much pressure you can handle and and how long you can go Yep, and I, I very much tested that hypothesis that <laughs> the body can handle a significant amount. Yeah, uh, because a funny story, well, not so funny, but I can tell it now. I couldn't tell it at the time, but three weeks into raising money for Citrus, we'd started, we were in the little Tokyo offices in Queen Street. I yep. remember walking in, I remember blacking out, I remember having a panic attack and my heart going, and I, had, I basically collapsed at work and had to go home, and then... I then started looking for a CEO because I thought I can't run this business. Like I'm, even though I'd been out of the startup for six months and I somewhat felt a tiny bit better, as soon as I was back in the environment again, it was just like a ton of bricks hit me. And from that moment on, I thought we need to just get this thing sold as quickly as we can. And I'm talking like months. And we had offers in the first six months. We didn't really take them and they kind of fell over. But my biggest achievement is just is just getting to the finish line like getting to the end getting a result for my shareholders and like yeah for me if i hadn't have had my co-founder i never would have got there and people talk about value of, of of friendships and loyalty and people and i still remember vividly calling him at brisbane airport being like i've got a i need a favor what is it now I need you to go to LA for me. <laughs> so, uh, I hope you're not in bed. I, I, I did a slide once upon a time at, at, at a founder kind of summit and kind of showed the stark contrast between 
the numbers people see and the numbers people don't and i talked about like the amount of antidepressants and anxiety tablets yeah. and the amount of psychiatry hours i did and the amount of panic attacks and the amount of flights i missed due to being really sick and unhealthy and the extremes that you put your body through to try and chase this success if i hadn't have had my co-founder like he was there every time to pick me up when i was basically falling down and talk about leadership and what you say and what you don't say is the good thing that i think i did well as a leader is that no one knew like no one ever suspected anything and i did a good job in hiding a lot of that stuff and when you're under that that much pressure and and every day you just feel like you just want to fucking dig a hole and sit in it it's pretty hard to get motivated and take people on a journey yeah. and get in front of clients and sell them on a dream i was only reading thinking about this this interview and thinking about leadership and thinking about some poignant things and then i was on youtube and something came up about there's a new application called grammarly i don't know if you've ever heard yeah, of it yeah. Yeah. yeah and so i'm like this keeps coming up i'll have a look at the video <laughs> being as i'm in advertising i might look at it yeah. and uh, it talked about the importance of tone and it's something that i had done very very consciously throughout my career is when you talk to someone on slack or on email like your tone is everything and it's very very easy when you're under significant amounts of pressure to snap or to get short with someone mm -hmm. or to get pissed off with someone when things aren't going right which is 99% of the time right and my favorite one is I can read between the lines in, in an email within the first line the difference between putting <laughs> hi Brad versus just Brad, Brad. Comma. <laughs> Oh, or like, just high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. High is slightly better than yeah. just your name, but but you you don't you don't really think about that on reflection until you until you get prompted and you think there are so many times where I wrote emails and then deleted the whole thing and then rewrote it and then re and then rewrote it like twenty different times because if nothing else, as a leader, what you need more than anything is patience to to bite your tongue to not show emotion other than that of good emotion and. Look, I was very raw with, with my team and they wanted to know a lot. They wanted to come as part of the journey, which ended up causing me a major catastrophe midway through our career. And again, I talk about that previous 12 months. Two months before we closed the round, my co-founder and CTO left the business, so he resigned. My CFO left and my COO left. So then I'm going into a capital raise, trying to smile. Yeah. Hey, everything's good. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. Uh, felt like Richard Pryor, like, yeah. you know, like, and trying to not conceal the fact that we just lost three of our management team, but, and our co-founder who was a CTO at the time. But some of the things that I was still learning then is that you have to be really careful how much information you divulge to, to, to certain people. And, and so one of the things that, that, I'd, I'd learned the lesson before, but I got, I've made the mistake twice, basically, is where I'm getting to. I would share things like the equity ownership of the business and how much people owned and, and to try and feel like the... Transparent. Yeah, be very, very transparent. And unfortunately, when the CTO left, he, he gave up a large sum of his stock and a lot of the senior engineers at the time, well, one in particular thought, well, I'm doing a lot of the work now, I'm going to take all that. And didn't quite understand how cap tables work and how when equity gets absorbed back in the business it can't just be redistributed it has a significant value and so just even that type of information caused a lot of people to go stir crazy and yeah. it caused a lot of friction in our business around well why is the co-founder worth this much he only he doesn't he only does that and that and a lot of finger pointing and i remember 
not really thinking it was a huge deal until I came back for Christmas one time and both me and my co-founder had been out. He was in the UK, I was in the US trying to grow the business and we came back to Australia, well, I came back to Australia and I came to the Christmas party and it was like I'd walked into a fucking deep freeze. It, it was like the frostiest reception I've ever had from people <laughs> and I'm like, okay, something's really wrong here. Like, none of the staff You're want pity. to talk to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not getting anything from anyone and I'd seen poison being laid before in previous businesses and with previous people but not to this level we were leaderless in the tech division we were scrounging for money clients weren't really coming the business was like i don't want to put words in the cto's mouth but he kind of would have looked at the business at that time and gone it's not going to make it like i'm done finished right i've done my two years it's bloody hard work it is really hard work working it's not just the working 24 7 because it's the responsibility is carrying that yeah. weight on your shoulders yeah. every day and and dealing with customers just who are yeah. relentlessly brutal and in a new market where no one really knew what was going on so lots and lots of thinking that uh, that went on and and unfortunately we let this we let this problem fester for far too long and then spent pretty much six months trying to just recoup some of the energy back in the business and you can't waste six months when you're in a startup no. so yeah so yeah so there's a lot of things that we that i certainly learned but I wanted to be transparent and raw and honest with people, but there's a fine line between honest and scaring people or annoying people. And I'd never really tell people if we were running out of cash because you're always running out of cash. And you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you're always thinking, can I pay payroll this week? And uh, I understand that pressure very well. My I was in a couple of companies in Brisbane, so I was the CFO financial controller when they were sinking. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. can understand the pressure and my hands were tied and my mouth was shipped as well. Yep. Can't talk. Yep. So I yep. don't know because the moment I, I put a word to say, you know, okay, we can't make it. That's going to be... <laughs> yeah, everyone leaves. Leave <laughs> 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 next day. <laughs> they were waiting for me to say that, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. In, but, but, but the thing is, is I, I ran on a policy that if you asked me the question, I would give you the answer. But before I gave you the answer, I would ask you, are you sure you want to know the answer to this question? Yeah. And many, many times they'd say yes. And then they think about it for a while and they say, no, I don't want to know that answer. So, uh, yeah, they, they got pretty... They were pretty resilient, but they, they kind of knew eventually that I'd always find a way to make it work. So they developed that level of trust in me and, and the guys that followed me to the end. I mean, we had five people built the Citrus platform. So the entire system that you see today is pretty much built, the majority of it, by just five, five engineers. Five engineers. Five engineers in 10 months. Wow. We built a system that sort of, I won't say rival Google, but we were winning clients off Google and Critio and all these massive companies. So there's some some pretty special people. For sure. Uh, and what makes them even more special is that a lot of them hung around right till the end. And I was really sad to see one of them go only a month ago, but it was kind of time for him to move on. And I'm surprised yeah. that lasted this long. Life will move on. So at some point, people go dif different paths, which is something that we didn't expect as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, credit to them though. Like every, every month in a startup is like a decade. The pressure that you're under... When you go and win a big client like a target in the US, it's great accolade for everyone. Everyone's excited. And then you come back and you tell the engineers and you're like, yeah. So I'll give you an example. Like Woolworths is, is a pretty big client, right? It's pretty big. And, and they would probably do maybe, we had an API-based system. 
And so that people, retailers would call our API for ads and then that we would send the ads and they would display them on their yeah. website, like sponsored products and banners and stuff. And so Woolworths were probably around like maybe 500 requests per second, which is pretty good going. Like yeah, it's good going. And then, so I walk in and it's coming up to Black Friday as well in the US. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, look, Target are pretty big. I think we just need to up our, up our servers. Can we add more servers on? And they go, yeah, yeah, what's the, what's the like, What's the volume? I said, oh, it's about, it's 30,000 requests per second. <laughs> and he's just like, see the look on their face, you're like, you fucking kidding me? Like, how are we going to go from like 500 to 30,000? And I'm like, oh, I'm sure we can make it work. Right? <laughs> and they want it in a response time of like less than 50 milliseconds. And, and so the engineers are just like shaking their head. And I'm like, I've put gray hairs on these guys and uh, <laughs> but you know what they found a way that, that's the thing my sometimes as leaders we have to stretch our boundaries i do the same thing when i'm in a conversation with a client i would say uh, i need the financials then i say okay I'll, I'll get it tomorrow and then we'll work it out and it happens but if i t- take time either creativity is not going to come in the team spirit yep. is not going to be there you have to sometimes over promise and then work it out oh <laughs> absolutely yeah i mean even <laughs> even like deadlines even if they're artificial have to be there because if you don't have a deadline and we've definitely seen it since we've since we've been acquired is there's not the same amount of time pressure on as there is when you're a startup and trying to make it or break it right and when you put in wouldn't put a timeline on something people just find a way to get it done and they prioritize so much better and it's like well i can't do that because i need to do this and unfortunately when you stop prioritizing and putting time pressure on people and it's a fine balance between burning people out and giving them a goal to work towards but i find that people like to work in sprints as they now call them in software engineering it's a sprint but the concept yeah. of a sprint is not necessarily just a time-bound two weeks it's the idea that you're you've got a clear goal in mind and you're going to sprint towards it and then you're going to stop and reset create a new goal. and so yeah we we winged so much stuff it's not funny like we yeah when you say fake it till you make it i mean we were <laughs> signing up big clients with no idea how to service them and they wanted minimum revenue guarantees and like yeah sure we can do that and just like hoping for the best and but you know what we just we did what we could we had faith in each other we had a really good team and i knew that team was were really smart and they could basically get over any hurdle that i would throw at them so yeah, and and that that sort of testing the team as well, how cohesive they are as a team, how much they can do. Some of them are not going to be a player, so they will get out. That's for sure. But yep. <laughs> we need to do what we need to do. Yeah, yeah. I think as a as a founder too, and as a leader, that there's an old saying, "Lead from the front." But there's also a saying of "Lead from the back," where you you're constantly pushing your teammates up the hill and having that kind of servant leadership and. Even though I couldn't add any value to them coding at three in the morning before we launched our first client, I was still there trying to make them coffee or Red Bull or whatever it was to just like keep be the there. spirits up and be there for them and make sure that we're a team, right? We're all in this together. We all played very, very different roles. And in, and that's how you build mutual respect with each other. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, I can reach that as well. Like when I first started uh, this business because of the time zone thing, so they are four and a half hours behind. And some of the client work that we took over for them to do, I was watching from here the overnight. Mm. It's daytime for them. So yeah, they were yeah. doing it and I was watching. So if there's any question, then I, I'm there to help. Yep. I know it is something that you need to do at times yeah. to stretch yourself. It is. And then when, when clients want to do 
performance load testing at three in the morning. Um, yeah, that's true. Really <laughs> so you got no choice, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great conversation. I'd love to continue, but because of the time, I would ask you a few questions. Yeah, sure. One is obviously this question I get asked, I mostly ask from the guests is about like, what's your advice for the young and upcoming leaders, especially in the startup space? What is the one thing that you can tell them <laughs> if they want to be successful in the journey? Oh man, there's no one thing. I think, I think it's like having a baby expect the unexpected people get frustrated with new babies when they get into a routine of sleep oh baby's like to sleep now between this hour and this hour, and then it changes and it's like i wasn't ready for that change and yeah. so like startups are no different there there is two maybe con- constructive pieces of advice like one is to go get a mentor because it's it's a lonely road like super lonely and you need that mentor to be not invested in the business because as soon as they've got their money in the business they worry about their money first, you second. And so if I found that my second business, I had much more of a mentor than my first and it made the world a difference because if nothing else, they helped to paint some perspective on, on things. Mm-hmm. The other thing really around startup success is you have to be a jack of all trades and so you're never too good to do anything. You've got to be a salesman. You've got to be the technology guy. You've got to be the product person. You've got to be the marketer. You've got to know how to raise capital. Like you've got to do everything. And I think work ethic comes with most people that want to do a startup anyway. Like people are generally wired in Taipei and they want to they want to be successful. But yeah, I would say that the mentoring is a huge thing. And I think that you need a significant amount of, of resilience. I think there's nothing new there. But it's really, really difficult. But I think leading a startup, you've always just got to remain super humble. Like people, it's all about who you know. And when you're good to people, they will find a way to be good back to you. And it, it's an ever-growing community of people out in the world. And if you get a good reputation, and people want to help you, help them back. And then don't take anything for granted. Like it can all end tomorrow. There's always someone... You're more successful, richer, more famous than you are. And it's, it's as again, I've talked about luck a lot. Yeah. You work hard and if you get lucky, you get lucky. But I, I think for most aspiring founders who want to start a business, you, you have to be extremely resilient, prepared for a lot of no's. And the only one other piece of constructive advice is to raise capital. Like raising capital is good for two reasons. One, because you need it. <laughs> You're not going to work without it. And secondly, it's a, it's an acid test for me. So raising capital forces you to create a business plan, set of financials, and create a set of assumptions for sophisticated people with money to part with. And if you can't get people to part with their money for your business idea, then there's probably something wrong with it. True. So, And it also is the first the first step to show that you're capable of rejection. So a lot of people that I've met say, oh, I don't want to raise capital. I don't need to raise capital. I'm just going to continue to bootstrap it. When really what they want to tell me is they're afraid yeah. of hearing no yeah. and afraid of hearing that their idea is not actually that good. And so capital raising 
we, we kind of weeds out those two things. So, so true. So, yeah. yeah, and give you the clarity as well, and then give it a bit of a vision that okay, if someone is is happy to put the money in, that means okay, there's something in it. That's validation. Right? <laughs> That's validation. Market validation, <laughs> right there. <laughs> if you can raise two million dollars for your business, there's market validation right there. Yeah, so, so. so true. So true. Great idea, mate. I know we, if I had time, I would have explored more. But one other thing I want to explore is I know you've come a long way now. So what's the future hold for you from now? I guess a, a, a well-deserved break is probably something that I need to do for my own sanity and, and health. I think that to have to look after your body at some point. Otherwise, you'll just continue to, to, to burn yourself into the ground. I'd love to... I'm helping a lot of startups now. I'd love to stay involved in the startup community. I'll probably start a... A VC firm next year, of some of some sort, probably not till Q3. I have my third child due in in March, so oh. so I've got a, I've got a busy first quarter and a busy yeah. second quarter. But yeah, look, I think I'll get into the into the venture capital side of things. I do enjoy working with startups. I would never do my own startup ever again because I just know what it takes and what sacrifices it it, it takes. And I'm not in a position in life anymore to sacrifice my kids and my wife and health and You're done it, for man. what for an extra zero on my bank balance like for another tick to the box it doesn't it's not worth it for me to do it but i'd love to educate and help other young founders who want to do it maybe help them avoid the 50 of the 100 mistakes that i made right i think there's a lot of a lot of information it's a, it's a great aspiration mate and uh, yeah i'm sure you know you learn enough to share now yeah it's also about giving a little bit back to that saying too corny is it i i got extremely lucky in my career and I think it's it's important for me to translate some of that luck back into to people that, that are aspirational and who want to, to, to do it. And as an acid test I always have with young founders is I will give them, like I'll meet with them, but then I'll deliberately ignore them for a few weeks and I'll see which ones chase me <laughs> yeah, and which yeah, ones yeah. don't. I know what you and, mean. Uh, and it sounds cruel, but it's like you can pretty much tell the ones who are who want to make it and the ones that just want to do it for sport because the ones that want to make it they they follow you up for sure and they make you commit yeah, to things consistency matters isn't it? it it matters it does and it's a great trait to have and yeah. you'll figure it out like if you pivot enough and you try hard enough and you talk to en- enough people you will you will figure out your business plan so um, persistence is everything yeah that's a great story man really inspirational and i'm sure a lot of people want to get connected with you after hearing this podcast What's the best way to get in touch with you? Just one three hundred. Don't call. Uh, <laughs> right. No, no. Like I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm easy enough to find. Yeah, people can can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I think and and connect if they wanna if they wanna have a chat. But I'm more than happy to give my time to people that are on the startup journey and and seek advice out. As I got plenty of advice along the way for free. So it's yeah. I'm certainly open to to hearing what people are up to and if I can point them in the right direction, more than happy to. Perfect. Right. Thank you very much, Brad. Very no, no inspirational. Worries. And I think uh, I learned a lot from this podcast as well. No, good. Yeah. So that was one tick. Yeah, it's another tick. Exactly. <laughs> so that's part of the game as well, learning from me, learning from each other, So which is a great thing. And, and all the best with your future endeavors. Yeah, no, thanks.